today we find ourselves uh, again in the book of Luke. Uh, we're in chapter 21. We have a number of verses to cover, which we'll take a look at throughout the message. I want to begin by just picking up a little bit outside of the text we were assigned to look at a couple of verses to give us some background to set us up for what's happening in our text today. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 7, Luke 21, verses 5 through 7, that will set the background for us for our message today. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. Take your find whichever Bible version you like, but it'll be something similar to this. Luke 21, starting at verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be one left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Would you please pray with me? Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our mediator. And through your sacrifice, through your life, giving us access to the Father. Father, Father, we do ask that you would grant mercy to us as we look at your word today that it might prick our hearts, that it might transform our lives, and that you might conform us more to the image of Christ uh, as a result of what we hear from your word today. We pray that your spirit would take what is said, uh, that he would guide what I say so that it's communicated clearly, but then that he would work in our hearts so that we might be changed and different than we were before. Uh, in a way that looks more like Jesus. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this opportunity for as believers together. Please be with us and grant us your mercy so that we might love you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin by first of all, just want to on behalf of my family say to the elders and the congregation of our church, thank you. I realize that being able to take a sabbatical and have time off is a unique opportunity in life that very few people have the chance to receive. And so for this precious gift from God and for you, our church family, we are extremely, extremely thankful. Uh, And just want to let you know how much we appreciate you blessing us with this opportunity. But while I was on sabbatical, one of the things my family and I did was we had a chance to invite people over to our home Uh, that we had not seen in a while. Uh, Some of these people, most of them, uh, we have been a small group with at one time or another. Some we are still attending here. Others, for one reason or another, have moved on to other churches. But we wanted to use this time to connect with them because just right now in the way that ministry works, uh, not often do I have time to be able to to visit with people like that during that period of the sabbatical. And so we want to take time to have people over. And, And so we had... Over that period of the eight weeks, a variety of different people over to our home uh, to to connect with them again. And in preparation for these visits, of course, uh, each time, because of the way my wife was raised, the way that I was raised, we wanted to make sure that our house was clean and straightened up before our guests arrived. On some occasions, they required little effort. On on other occasions, well, it, it required a little bit more effort. So we would break out the vacuum cleaner. We would break out the wipes, uh, we clean the bathroom, straighten up pillows, uh, because we wanted the house to be prepared to receive our guests. And sometimes, uh, well, most of the time, or if not all of the time, 
Before our guests would arrive, I would assign my children the duty of going to the window. And their job was to, to watch because we didn't have an exact set time around about 6, around about 6.30, around about 7 for people to arrive. And then they would look out the window so when the people or our guests would show up, we could walk downstairs and greet them at the front door. Now, sometimes the reality was because we were still trying to tidy up and we had finished cleaning up. And so we wanted to know when they were showing up to know how much time we had left. And then other times my wife was still trying to prepare snacks. Because for us, a value is, uh, in our family, to be prepared when we know guests are arriving. And I would go so far as to guess that perhaps if I were to ask you, you probably feel the same way. You prepare or you like to prepare your home when you know someone is coming over to visit. As I gave some thought this week as I was preparing for the message, I realized that preparation is just part of good living. Uh, and when we think about it, just recently, uh, school started back up in our last few weeks. And if you have school-age children, mostly, probably most five, mostly five days out of the week, they're getting prepared to go to school. You don't want them just to wake up and go to school after just waking up in the state that they're in. They need to go through a preparation process. And, and for most of you in this room, if you do have school-age children or grandchildren, uh, you have to go to work as well. So you're not just getting them prepared, but you're preparing yourself for the day as well. Uh, you probably had to prepare to come to church today. Uh, we look at life and we tell our kids and those who were influencing grandkids, prepare for life by getting an education or pursuing a trade. We prepare when we have job interviews or when we're preparing to meet with a new client. Uh, because of our, the church and those of us who are believers, we try to prepare for marriage. We even prepare for death. You know, like things like we buy life insurance or we write a will or we go out and pick a grave site and purchase a plot in order to prepare for death. And if I were to say it, it's almost like all these things serve as a reminder to prepare for the one meeting that we all must attend. It's that one unavoidable meeting that every person must have whether or not they believe in God. It's a meeting with God. There was an atheist who said that he had a near-death experience and afterward he had uh, talked about the fact that he had engaged or met the Creator. But even though he said later on still, don't worry to his friends, I'm still an atheist, even though I seem like I've run into the Creator after death. See, it's a reality that we must all face God in the person of Jesus and so my question for us today is, are you ready to meet Jesus face to face? And if not, if there's some hesitancy in you, why is that the case? Now, there are a number of questions that I will ask throughout this message, but I want to frame our time together around three main questions. Three main questions. The first being, what do we, why, excuse me, why do we need to prepare to meet Jesus? The second being, why should we believe what Jesus said or why should we trust him? And the third being, how do we prepare to meet Jesus? Why do we need to prepare to meet Jesus? Why should we trust Jesus? And then how do we prepare to meet Jesus? So why do we need to prepare to meet Jesus? The reason is, is because Jesus and others told us that he is coming. 
See, Jesus is going to appear one day in power and great glory to rescue those who trust in him, saints, and judge humanity, whether alive or deceased at the time of his appearing or arrivals. His apostles told us this. Peter mentioned this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. Uh, he mentioned it in second letter, chapter 3. Paul uh, shared this in Acts 17, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, and then a variety of other places in the other letters that he wrote. Uh, John said the same thing in 1 John chapters 2 and 3, and then, of course, in that famous passage, Revelation chapter 19, even angels from heaven at the ascension of Jesus told us this, if you look back at Acts chapters 1. And that Jesus in the Gospels here, the one we're focusing on, Luke, we are already seeing in Luke chapter 17, he told us this. And then he tells us this again now in Luke chapter 21. Look at me at verse 25, if you will. Verse 25, picking up there. Notice what the text says. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on earth the distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the power of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things began to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. With the use of what is referred to as apocalyptic language, Jesus draws upon images from the Old Testament prophets like you remember Daniel from Daniel and the Lion's Den uh, to let his disciples know that he would return one day. Uh, for his disciples, of course, Jesus wants them to understand that this is not a day to fear, but a day to rejoice. Because when he does return, it will be to rescue them and to bring them to be where he is. Like he told him in John chapter 14, where he said that in his house, in his father's house, were many rooms. And he wouldn't have told him if it was not so. But he was going to go away and then come back to receive them to himself. And so for believers, for those who follow Jesus, it is to be a day of great joy because we love his appearing. So the Bible tells us, uh, as it records the testimonies of his apostles, of angels, and of Jesus himself, that one day he's going to appear again. And I would ask us, as I ask myself, if we're willing to prepare our homes for guests to come over, shouldn't we prepare our lives for God to visit? Now, for some of you, you believe Jesus is coming. It's just that you don't want him to come soon. And if the truth were told, you you really see his appearing as an interruption in your life. Uh, if Jesus appears tomorrow, that would keep you from achieving certain life goals. Your heart says, Lord, come, just not right now. As I've shared before, in the first few years of my belief in Jesus Christ, that I had come to faith in Christ, there was a stronger desire in my heart to be married than there was to see Jesus come. And so often I would pray something like this. I would say, Lord, I want you to come, but not before you let me get married. What I was really saying was, Jesus, I'm really not ready for you to arrive just yet. I want you to come, just not right now. For others, you don't believe that Jesus will appear 
one day. And I can understand that position. When we read about this event, it seems so foreign to our everyday experiences. The world appears like it will go on as it has for the past two millennia. Uh, things will just keep happening as they've always happened under natural, natural occurrences or so they appear. And so this prophecy may sound like something that comes out of the realm of Hollywood's sci-fi movies. And perhaps it is for this reason that you may have even dismissed Jesus' statements as fiction. The idea that Jesus could show up, say, this coming uh, Tuesday just seems at best fanciful. And if that is the case, then that brings us to our second main question in the text, which becomes important. Why should we trust Jesus? Why should we believe him about something that seems so foreign to our daily experiences and world? Well, to say it plainly, it's that Jesus tells the truth. Jesus tells the truth. In addition to predicting his own rejection by the religious leaders of his day, his brutal suffering at the hands of the Romans, his death not for himself but for sinners so that they could be saved, and his glorious resurrection from the dead beforehand, followed by those exact events transpiring as he said, we find similar circumstances in our text today as Jesus speaks about society, his disciples, and the fate of the beloved city, Jerusalem. In reference to society, let's pick up at verse 8 with me. Verse 8 in the text. And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in the various places, famines, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Jesus says here in this text that other people will come along claiming to be the Messiah, and his disciples were not to follow them. The Jewish historian Josephus, in service of the Romans, recorded there, there were such people who existed. One of the men that he records for us is a man by the name of Thutis who led a group of people out somewhere between A.D. 44 to 46 by convincing them that he was going to cross the River Jordan in a special way, something reminiscent of what Moses did and what Joshua had done. Of course, Moses had done it with the Red Sea and Joshua with the Jordan River. And I know it may seem unlikely to us, but a number of people followed him with their possessions. But what Thutis didn't know was that at the same time, the Roman authorities had uh, come across this plot of what he was going to do and, and sent out a, a garrison of horsemen who, uh, who fell upon them unexpectedly, ultimately killing some and capturing others. Thutis was one of the ones who was captured, and later he was executed for this reason. The difference between him and Jesus is that he did not rise from the dead. Thutis is still dead today. See, Jesus warns his disciples then and us today that false messiahs will arise and we are not to follow them. Simply think back to some of the ones who've happened during our day, one of the most popular ones, of course, being Jim Jones. And so this warning remains valid for us today. Don't follow anyone who would make these promises 
to be a savior messiah other than Jesus, we are to watch out. Similar things can be pointed out for the rest of the things that he says about society in the text. That brings us to what does he say about disciples. Please look with me at verse 12. Verse 12. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and some of you they will even put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. When we come to the book of Acts, that, which is Luke's second book, it records for us the historical events that show Jesus' words of what he says here to be true. His disciples did suffer persecution, and some were even put to death. Think back for a moment to James, the brother of John, the beloved disciple, and Stephen, the the first, if you will, deacon of the church, one of the first deacons, was stoned to death. And, and still the reality is that many of Jesus' followers suffer today, and some even die for their faith in Jesus. And so when we come to the book of Acts, we see what Jesus said playing out in the lives of his disciples, especially two of his apostles, uh, Peter at the first part of Acts and Paul at the latter part of Acts. And Peter and Paul, just like Jesus said, were taken before governmental authorities as the gospel traveled from a, Jew a Jewish environment to a Gentile environment, from Jerusalem to Rome. And many of his disciples suffered persecution. But Jesus, as Jesus said, this became an opportunity for witness. Uh, this was not to be seen by them as something bad is happening outside of God's control, but persecution and suffering became an opportunity to witness for Jesus. And that's exactly what it was in the lives of his apostles, just like Jesus said, and the same can be true of us. When we cling to our faith during difficult moments of life, the genuineness of it, the authenticity of it comes out so that others see, why are you in the midst of this difficult circumstance still believing in Jesus? Uh, it points to the reality that what we hold to is true and gives credibility to our faith. And such was for the many of the disciples of Jesus during that time. Because as Jesus tells his followers, told his followers then, which is still true of all of his followers now, that there are hard times that come for us because we're associated with him. See, what Jesus said happened because Jesus tells the truth. And then finally in the text, we see the fate of Jerusalem as Jesus said. Now remember, as we're reading these words, Jesus is speaking somewhere in the early 30s, AD 30s, either AD 30 or AD 33, uh, when we pick up here at verse 20, as he speaks years before uh, these events would transpire. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart 
and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now you have to remember Jesus' words here seem uh, just opposite of what would have been done during this period when uh, an invading army would come in. The normal procedure was that when an army, if you lived in the countryside around a walled city, was to go into the city for protection. But what Jesus says is run away from the city. Do just the opposite of what you would normally do. And we realize that, that there's a reason why that is after we look at what happened in history. So the temple which had started turned out to be an 80-year project to build this temple. And it was a magnificent building with large white stones. And it was adorned with gold ornaments. Uh, the doors were made of cover or covered in gold. And so it was a beautiful building. And it wouldn't be finished until AD 63, some 30 to 33 years after Jesus said this. It was still being built and had been under construction for a number of years when Jesus made these statements. But another 30 to 30 years later, it was finished. And just after it being finished in somewhere around AD 63, just three, year later, three years later, war would break out in the Judean area as rebels, some proclaiming to be false messiahs, would gather people to, to try to overthrow or throw off Rome's uh, rule over them. And so a war would break out that would take about the next four years. Uh, during this time, uh, Vespasian, the Roman leader, would come down and he would bring with him uh, several Roman legions, uh, the 5th Legion, the 10th Legion, the 12th Roman Legion, and the 15th, along with some auxiliary forces. And that war would go on, and, and he would start to put down the rebellion. But because of things that had happened in Rome, he had gone back to Rome and turned over the command of the army to his son, Titus. And the war would culminate in A.D. 70, uh, when Titus would take over and lay siege to the city for five months ultimately cutting off all food supplies and engaged in what is maybe known as total war. So many of the civilians who tried to escape were crucified. Others were cut open because there was believed by some of the soldiers that they had swallowed gold or jewel to try to escape with that and have no evidence, and so they were being cut open. Josephus tells us that around some 97,000 after the war was looked at in total, 97,000 people were taken prisoner, and just over a million were killed in the siege. Now, Josephus has a tendency to exaggerate sometimes, but even in light of this fact, the loss of life was staggering. And it was after that five months that Rome uh, raised Jerusalem to the ground and burned it with fire. And the temple and the city were destroyed, just as Jesus said. And what's interesting is that Josephus records for us that this second temple was destroyed on the same day and month as when the Babylonians destroyed Solomon, the first temple, on that day and month. As Jeremiah records it, it was the 10th day of the 5th month. That would be for us sometime in late July, August time frame. See what Jesus said happened because Jesus tells the truth. 
Now you might be wondering, well, what about the Christians of that day? Well, the, the church historian who lived two centuries after this event or thereabouts by the name of Eusebius, if he's correct in his uh, retelling of history, then the Christians around the area fled before these horrific events uh, to some other areas because they believe what Jesus said is true and comes true in God's appointed time. And thus, that is the reason he can be trusted. And what he said, because we know what he said will happen. The Lord goes on in verses 29 through 33 to tell us as much as we see in the text. And read in verse 29. Let's pick up there and see that Jesus confirms this when he says, And he told them a parable look at the fig tree and all the trees. And as soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when these things see, when you see these things taking place, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Contained in these verses is one of the most difficult sayings in the Bible, at least in the Gospel of Luke, and it has to do with how we should interpret this generation. There are a number of interpretations out there as how to take this, but for the sake of time today, I will not address that uh, in this message. But if you desire to see me, you can always email me sometime during the week and I can try to reply to you if you want more uh, information about that. My pain, main point is here is that Jesus tells the truth. And the question for each of us in our hearts, if we get down to where the rubber meets the road, is do we, do you believe him? Do you believe what he says? That brings us to our last main question that I want to address, and that is how do we prepare to meet Jesus? How do we prepare to meet Jesus? Well, in this text, Jesus tells us the way to prepare is to stay alert. And he encourages us to stay ready through a series of commands that he gives in the text. Look with me at verse 34, verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole world. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the sun. A man. Now the Lord gives us two ways in this text, I believe, to stay on guard, to be watchful, if you will. The first one he says in the text is to live carefully, to live carefully. We should not allow the worries of this life, or I would even say the pleasures of, the, of, pleasures of this life, to lead us into living in ungodly ways. Here he characterizes that by using in the picture of drunkenness and the hangover that comes afterwards. Nor would we be so focused on the cares of this life, such as uh, living to make ourselves wealthy or pursuing wealth or possessions, or even uh, neglecting the care for the poor, that we become spiritually unfruitful. We cannot, as Dr. Joel Green states, engage in a business-as-usual lifestyle. See, Jesus is very concerned that we live right now in a healthy relationship with God, and that includes living in a healthy relationship with other people, especially 
of the Christians. And so we're encouraged through Scripture to live not only holy lives, but compassionate lives. So if you were to take stock of your life right now, how are you doing in your relationships with people? The second way in the text, Jesus says that we can stay watchful is through a great resource to us, prayer. Like my children who I advise to look out the window to stay alert, to keep us alert to the arrival of our guests, Jesus says the way that we as believers stay alert is by praying. He encourages us to maintain a close relationship with God. Jesus says we need to pray. Uh, that's an asset in the Christian life. We need to pray that God protects us from being deceived by those who would come along and lead us astray. We need to pray that we would stay mindful and spiritually awake so that we don't get lulled into sleep by the daily activities of life. We need to pray that God would help us to remain faithful when we endure hardship and adversity by those being those who follow after Jesus in this world. And by staying in close relationship with God through prayer, it prepares our hearts so that we're always desiring and looking for Jesus' return so that when he does appear, there's not apprehension of us or there's not a lack of belief, but a love for his appearing that when he shows up, we want to see him when he arrives and we're not running and hiding. And as Jesus says in the text, we're not caught like an animal in a trap who was not expecting to be trapped and that day fall upon us. And so Jesus encourages us right now to cultivate our relationship with God through daily prayer. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples that I mentioned earlier, goes on and says in the text that having this hope of Jesus appearing has a practical value in our lives by purifying us in our everyday lives. He writes this in his epistle, the first letter of John. Uh, he says this in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Uh, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. It has a, a purifying effect in us. And as you're going through the day, I would ask you just to get an idea of what this is like. Do you ever ask yourself, if Jesus appeared or showed up right now, would I want him to find me doing this? Would I want him to find me acting this way? Would I want him to find me watching this? Would I want him to find me thinking about this person or myself or life this way? See, Jesus, uh, the idea of him arriving, John says, that hope has a way of purifying us. It's kind of like when I was a kid and we had been assigned chores by my parents after school. And sometimes instead of doing our chores, we would be watching TV, the cartoons that we liked during that day. And then when it got closer to time for thereabouts for my parents to come home, there would be a certain motivation that would happen in us to go and do our chores and we would turn off the TV. See, knowing that my parents were coming home had a way of motivating me to do what they had asked me to do. And John says the same thing happened as, as we 
reckon with the reality that Jesus is going to appear one day. It motivates us to live holy and compassionate lives. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're not a disciple of Jesus. And so you're trying to figure out, well, where do I fit at? Because this is talking to those who follow Jesus. But how do I prepare? Well, the Bible is clear. Jesus is clear. His apostles are clear about how you're to prepare. You prepare by recognizing the way that you live uh, as sinful. Repent. That is, you turn away from those sins and you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your only means of salvation and that you want to be rescued by him and you see him as the one who ultimately has to be the one who is the Lord and guider and ruler of your life and not you. If you want to talk more about this, one of the pastors that I would be happy to talk with you more in depth about this uh, at another time, please email us or call the church. We'd love to set up some time with you to talk about this in detail. This brings me to the conclusion of this message. I want to share an experience from a relative's life that I sought and got permission. Uh, it's not something that uh, he has shared with many people, but I've asked him because of the imagery uh, of his experience to allow me to share this with you. Uh, it's simply to paint a picture. Think of it like you would think of me just telling you about a movie is the idea. I'm not claiming anything more than using it for its imagery. Uh, so please take it uh, at that. When my relative was 12 years old, uh, he was not a believer in Jesus Christ. Neither his father nor his stepmother were the believers in Jesus Christ. But he did have some aunts in his life who occasionally would take him to church uh, when his father would allow it. And so while he was still an unbeliever at 12 years old, one night as an unbelieving 12-year-old boy, he had a dream. Uh, in the dream, he was playing on his back porch with his trucks at about noontime. It was a clear, beautiful blue sky sunny day, not a cloud in the sky. And as he was playing, the ground suddenly lit up. Uh, the way he described it, it was almost as if the sun had moved from its, its current position right next to the earth. The change in the, the light on the ground, the ground started to sparkle and lit up. And of course, this caused him to look up in the sky. But when he looked up, he no longer saw any sky. What he saw was figures in the sky uh, that were emanating light from them, standing shoulder to shoulder, which he knew were angels. He couldn't uh, look at them intently because the sky was, they were too bright. But there was no more blue sky in any direction he looked. All he saw was angels standing soldier to so, shoulder to shoulder like a, an army ready for battle. But his attention was quickly drawn to the brightest and largest figure uh, in the sky. Uh, on a cloud was a uh, a giant of a man is the way he describes it, sitting on a large throne with a long white robe uh, from whom uh, brightness emanated, brighter than anyone else in the sky. And in his hand, he held a golden scepter and on his head, he wore a golden crown and around him, he was surrounded by children and his eyes were like balls of fire. And he knew in himself that he could not hide anyone from the one who was sitting on the throne. And somehow, as an unbelieving 12-year-old boy in this dream, he knew that that person sitting on the throne was Jesus. Struck with fear in the dream, he ran around to the garage door that he was near his house right there and went into the garage door to make his way to the back of his garage, where was his laundry room at that time, in order to hide himself from the one 
who was sitting on the throne. But it did not help because the light emanating from the one sitting on the throne whose eyes were like fire pierced through the structure of the garage right to where he was at. And he knew he could not hide there. So he put up his hands to try to block out the light. And even his hands could not keep the light from the one sitting on the throne from coming through. His heart was gripped with terror and he awoke. It was about five years later uh, at a Billy Graham crusade that he would place his faith in Jesus Christ, repent of his sins, and trust him as his only means of salvation. See, Jesus said that uh, his arrival would catch the world off guard because they're not expecting him ever to come. And so for the world, it would be a day of sorrow. But for those of us who through prayer have cultivated our relationship with God, are waiting for his return and love his appearing, it will not catch us off guard. That will be a day of joy for us because we're prepared. So how do we as believers not get caught up in a trap like those who are not expecting his rival? Well, as I've said in the message, we should prepare because Jesus told us and we trust him because he tells the truth and we prepare by being watchful. And we're watchful by living carefully in those ways that are pleasing to God and by constantly engaging God through prayer. And so I ask you at the end, as I ask you at the beginning, are you ready to meet Jesus face to face? Let us pray. Father, we do ask now that you would take the truth of your word, you would apply it to our lives so that we might be ready for your return when you appear in the sky to rescue your saints and to judge humanity. We pray, Father, that we would live wisely and pray often. Prepare our hearts. Help us to witness in the time that we have to those who don't know you so that they're not caught off guard. Help us to live lives that bring credibility to the testimony that we share. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.